Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing too new. Hundreds more to go, and in need of a friend, the king of peace for Angelo, talking the 500 until the end, talking the 500 until the end, with my man J.A.M. My flannel by Doc Martens by Rip Shorts and let's go to Seattle because we are there. The song is super unknown. It's the title track off the 1994 perfect grunge record. You know what? Perfect rock record. Super unknown. It's number 355 out of blah, 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 blah on my podcast, The 500 with Josh Adamayas. How many of you are excited about today? I recorded this weeks ago, and I'm excited for this one to come out. Um, Join the Patreon. I say it all the time. Listen, I'm hanging on by a thread. If you listen and you've been listening, please pay the money. Pay it. Pay it. Pay it. I just need your money. Every dollar that you give to this podcast sponsors a Doberman Pinscher dog named Lekka that wants to eat morsels of delicious food and bonies. So send us your music and money, music money, to patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast, and you can subscribe to our YouTube. All right. Ooh, thank you, everybody in Vancouver. Thank you. Uh, man, those shows were great. Uh, I'm so excited uh, to be... I was, you know, it's just been... It's just a great place to to be, um, especially Vancouver. It's just beautiful. The people there are great. The weed there is incredible. 
Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. And Monday was a tough day. You know, 10 years losing my best. This is, you know, if Ange was here and knew that I spoke to my guest today, Kim Thale of Soundgarden, about Super Unknown. Well, first of all, Ange would be my co-host on this podcast. And it would be one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Um, but to be able to take Monday and just be uh, was really beautiful. Um, thank you to everybody that's been sending me messages. You know, I put up the Instagram post. Um, it's it's tough, but... You know, you, you got to keep on keeping on with life, everybody. I'm happy to say that I'm taking care of myself and... You know, I think that's all that matters. It's all you got to do, man, is the best way to honor somebody's death is one, keep on living and two, create a podcast <laughs> in their honor. Uh, so thank you, everybody uh, in Vancouver. I'll be in Texas next. Uh, comedy festivals coming up. It's going to be great. 2022, y'all. 2022. Happy New Year, y'all. All right. Soundgarden, super unknown. I mean, just perfect. It's just it's 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 driving music. It's walking around music. It's working out music. It's cleaning your apartment music. It's fucking going to the concert and just fucking getting all dirty and sweaty and banging up against people. You know, you've got one of the greatest lead singers of all time and Chris Cornell, one of the greatest drummers, greatest bass players. And and we have the fucking guitarist of the band who couldn't have been a nicer dude. And I'm happy to say where home is uh, Kim Thale. God bless your soul, dude. Uh, he is the lead guitarist of the band, Soundgarden. And that is the record, Super Unknown, that we are talking about today. Um, an incredible dude. This was an incredible conversation. We, uh, I could have talked for hours, for hours with him. And uh, I want to thank uh, his representation uh, for setting this up. And I want to thank Emily. Emily, 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 my booker. I love you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for getting this. I, this is what I want to do, Em. I want to do all grunge. I want to do a whole podcast series just about talking about grunge and different people when in their grunge situations. And I want to talk to like famous grunge people. Let's do that uh, as a totally different podcast. And uh, I'll bring you on as the booker because you fucking rule. Uh, listen, subscribe, rate, review to the 500 if you're not. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. JoshAdamMyers.com for all tickets. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan, who's dying of uh, mesothelioma. Uh, get better, dude. And for all things 500, go to the website, the500podcast.com. Join the Patreon. We're broke. All right. I'm so happy to say, here we go with 335 out of 500 with Super Unknown by Soundgarden and our guest, Kim Thale. But, you know, it's it's weird. We've had we've had a bunch of, of artists uh, on the podcast since we started doing this. But, you know when we have artists that are doing their records, it's, it's something that for, for the most part, a lot of the guys I know of, I know, you know, their history, I know for, you know, and I'm a fan of theirs, but for this record, I, I don't think we, we could have gotten. So I thank Emily so much for getting us you to come here and talk about arguably one of the, one of the greatest records of the nineties, man. I've heard people say that. And 
I, I don't know. I, I start trying to think of other records. I can only think of the records my friends made. So I, you know, I think of Pearl Jam and Nirvana and, and Mud Honey. I know there are other albums that happened in the 90s. Oh, yeah, Metallica. <laughs> Metallica. I, 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 I just think a lot of the MTV stuff, I kind of forget. Like, when was that? You know, so. But, but there were a lot of records that came out in the 90s, I imagine. It was, it was listen, it was a great era of music. And I, I mean, I can still pinpoint the moment that it changed from hair metal to quote unquote grunge. I remember watching MTV and Nelson's uh, I Can't Live Without My Love and Affection was being played. And then immediately after they put on Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it was like, you could just feel the world shake. I mean... I want you to tell me about your first meeting with what would become Soundgarden. I don't know how far back to go with that because well, I had relationships with Chris and Hero, musical relationships as well as friendships prior to the to the band. Um, let me try to frame this right. I'm kind of trying to <laughs> trying to find a place where I can hold this. Um, I knew Hero back in back in, in the Chicago suburbs where we grew up um, as teenagers. We had jammed together. We played in different bands from each other with mutual friends. Yeah. So we kind of knew each other and hang out at the same, you know, just the same scene, whatever, you know, whether it's a party or school or someone's show. And Chris, I knew because he was a, a roommate of mine who was also from the Chicago suburbs. He was a Seattle roommate but he was also a Chicago suburban guy. Um, he had a band going that didn't involve me initially. And he connected with Chris, I think through an ad in the rocket, which was a local, um, it's a local entertainment magazine. And at some point he recruited hero to play bass with Chris and, and my roommate, Matt and a drummer who was, briefly another roommate <laughs> and uh, they were doing covers like a lot of Hendrix and Doors and uh, I think some Buddy Holly and Otis Redding just you know kind of classic rock covers and it wasn't that great I mean Chris was great and the guitarist Matt was great but the band was just a goofy idea and so Hero quit and then yeah. my roommate said hey I need a bass player we got a few gigs lined up so I filled in and uh, Chris was underage, so he could only place a few of the gigs, or he had to get a permit to play in the bar. So <laughs> there were a few gigs we play where the keyboardist sang. It's just a weird kind of. Uh, it was just sort of a project to make beer money for uh, the, the lead guitarist. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually, uh, Hero and Chris moved into a house together. So they had a nice little rhythm section there. Chris, Chris was singing in this covers band. But he's primarily a drummer. He was a good, a really good drummer. So he found a lot more gigs playing drums. It's kind of hard to find gigs as a singer unless you start your own thing because it's such a, you know, such a personal signature. People may or may not be looking for uh, whatever it is that, he, that, that is that is your style or your inflection. And yeah, so they were together as a rhythm section as kind of drumming and playing bass. And uh, they started going through guitarists and inviting people over to jam with them. And nothing seemed to work out for those two guys um, guitar wise. And they discussed getting me to come by and they hesitated because I was in school and I had a full-time job and I had a girlfriend and it's just kind of 
busy and just kind of screwing up the things I already had. So I yeah. didn't really add to it. <laughs> they went ahead and asked me. I said, sure, I'll come by and jam with you guys. And it went great. The first time we got together, we wrote three songs uh, completely arranged. And we were amazed at how easy it was, how quick it happened in just a couple hours. Drank a bunch of beer, went downstairs, listened to either Joy Division or Zeppelin or, or Bauhaus. Went back, did all my school stuff the next day. And they called me in again, went back in to jam, did a couple more songs. And we were laughing and really happy at just the facility with which we communicated and wrote together. We'd all been in bands for years and this was the most, um, it just felt spontaneous and, and natural. And we were all, we were just kind of giddy with how, how, how easy things felt. Yeah. How, how we liked how everybody else fit in with our individual styles. I, 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 I'd known Hero and we'd grown up together. So it probably influenced some of our taste, but the way he played bass just fit. His instincts fit with where I was going on guitar. Chris's drumming instincts fit. And he, you know, he kind of knew me from this other band and didn't really know me as a guitarist. I was amazed at, like how my guitar playing fit with his idea of, of songwriting. And, and we're, we're, we're pretty happy with that. And then I didn't call them for like a week and, they, and Hero kept calling. He's like, you want to practice this weekend? No, I gotta, I'm going out with my girlfriend. Want to practice uh, next Monday? No, I got a test. <laughs> but do you or do you not like what we did? Oh, I love what we did. Well, do you want to come back and play with us? Um, yes. Well, when? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> and so the calls kept continuing, and, and Hero knew me well enough to make me feel guilty. Yeah, dude. <laughs> he, he, he's, he knows how I fuck up, and he, he, he would just kind of address me uh, being a little bit slack in my relationships, and and, and I said, okay, okay, I'll come by the next day. And um, yeah, we just kept going like that for a while and um, songs just kept pouring in, just the well, ideas. You mentioned, you mentioned those three bands that you listened to, which I almost think I can hear a little bit of each one of those bands in your music. You mentioned Bauhaus, you mentioned Zeppelin, you mentioned Joy Division. Like, was there like a discussion of like, like we want to be like this or we want to sound like this, like, you know, you know, obviously you guys are all, you know, you know, music heads. So, so what was kind of like the first, like, you know, inclination of, of the music that you guys were doing? Because obviously grunge wasn't even real at that time. Right. And I hate even using that term grunge. I just, it's rock. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think we've kind of acquiesced to the term. I mean, we kind of, you know, fought it kicking and screaming but now it's just it's just there it's like okay it's a it's a, it's i found it to be an easy reference point when speaking to uh you know my aunt's uncle's parents or my friend's parents like what kind of music do you do uh, so, you know it's like somewhere between punk rock or heavy metal and they get glassy eyed stares like you know grunge you know, we're, we're, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, like, oh yes but even there's like elements I remember, and by the way, I know uh, Adam. Is it is it right now? It's the 30th anniversary of Bad Motorfinger. Mm -hmm. Yes, which which is incredible. And so I do this show called the Goddamn Comedy Jam, where comics do stand up, then they tell a story about a song, and then they sing that song uh, with my band. And it's like everybody's done it. And I remember right at the beginning when we were first getting ready to do it, I told my band Elemento P. I changed the song two days before, and I go, I want to do Outshined. 
And I remember, I remember my drummer and my guitarist like looking at me and I was like, are you guys okay? And they're like, we're not trained monkeys. That's in seven. That's like a prog rock song. You think we can just learn that that quickly? I mean, there's so many different styles in, in your music. So the term grunge, it's just, I never felt like it really fit with, you guys were a part of that system, but it's like your music is so far removed. I think what Nirvana's doing, and even Kurt Cobain said, you know, you, you guys were like his favorite, only other Seattle band that he loved. It's like, like thoughts. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, yeah. Well, about that comment, you know, the few times I, I, I remember Bleach came out and I was just telling, I ran to Kurt at a, was it a Melvin show? He was standing there by himself and I, I never do this, but I just ran in by myself and I hated that. I just hated stand because you'd never see the band. You end up talking to people and people yeah. Come up and, but Kurt was standing by himself. I was standing by myself. I said, walked over and go, hey, man, Bleach is so great. We, we just, the band just loves the album. Everyone, and, you know, in, in the band, we played all the time when we're, we're, when we're on the road. And he said, wow, thanks, man. He goes, well, consider yourselves our, our biggest influence. And I thought we were probably an influence, but it was, it, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a fraternal kind of warmth in the way he said that, you know, and I was, and I was yeah. like, Wow, right on, because we love them. It's like, that's, you know, if, if I, I, I can't, I don't, I can't bash any other, any bands, but, but if it had it not been a band that was in our, in our heavy rotation, uh, in our band band, and, and this, and, and the, the guitars and the singers saying that to us, you know, it, it, it would have just, it would have maybe bounced off me. But of course. The fact that it was someone that I had so much regard and, and, and an appreciation for that was that was a cool thing. Then we felt we were doing something right if we're imparting, you know, our ideas to people who are, were receptive to them, and and incorporated that into their vision for what they'd like to do. And so, going back to your question earlier yeah, please. about Joy Division and Bauhaus and and Zeppelin, I mean, I like them individually. I think we I referenced listening to those bands because it was probably. It would probably would have been a collective um, uh, playlist that it's something that Chris Hero and I would 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 have listened to. Um, Chris's taste at that time, or maybe a little bit more new wave and and you know some classic rock and Hero's taste. I remember he was really into Susie and the Banshees, and he liked Joy Division, about House, and I did too. At the time, I'd been I. I think I was still at the college radio station, KCMU, uh -huh. which has become KEXP now, um, which is, I guess, it's like international streaming uh, thing. But back then, it was just a small wattage college radio station. And that would have been 80, early, well, been 84. So I was, I was probably going through a lot of the indie hardcore, post-hardcore, you know, like the SST bands, like, Meat Puppets, Who's um, Sacred Trust, Black Flag, um, Early Butthole Surfers. That would have been coming through the studio. Yeah. And, and, and the program director probably would have like put in like low rotation. And since <laughs> I had to show at two in the morning, I, I play it a lot. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's <laughs> what I would have brought by practice. Like, dude, check out this Big Boys album, you know. And, but somewhere in there, I think Bauhaus, Joy Division, Zeppelin would have would have connected with all three of us definitely 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about the, you know, getting that shine from, from Kurt and, you know, I know like Jerry was a huge fan from Alice in Chains. Like, was there like, just, you know, when the scene started like popping up and I know we skipped over a lot from you guys going from jamming to suddenly now you're already, you're already Soundgarden, you're doing it. But uh, like, what, what was that scene really like? Was it all everybody helping each other out? I mean, because you know, it's and with, as comics, you know, it's when you're when you're all haven't made it yet. We're all helping everybody. It's not until the shine starts and then the jealousy and all that stuff kind of comes into into the scene. I so think you're, about- I think you're totally right about that. I think there was definitely some reappraisals of, of, of careers after Nirvana hit, you know, hit it big. I mean, there I saw a lot of weird bitterness from from bands, you know, around around town. They still had this love and affection and pride in, in, in one of their peers, you know, making it, but it was weird because you'd see a lot of um, bands that hadn't, you know, that hadn't had the success that say we had, or, or, or Alice or the screaming trees, even you'd see a lot of people kind of thinking, well, what about us? You know, we're good. It's like, yeah, well, you are good. Yes. It's, so there, that, that's just a comment to, to the last thing you said about when the shine happens. But, but prior to that, it was incredibly supportive and collaborative. It wasn't that competitive at all. I'm sure if there was any competition, it was, it was, it was friendly. It's like, I, th- I think everyone probably wanted to outdo each other to some degree or, or to come up with a cooler song. We were each other's best audience. Not a lot of bands came to Seattle. It was, I remember Prince was on tour. They played like three, I think he played Prince and the Revolution. He played three shows in Portland and none in Seattle because the promoters didn't think there's a large enough African-American audience in Seattle to book Prince, which was the craziest thing. I only heard yeah. that because I was at the radio station. Like, what the? So the, and, and the only bands that came through were like Black Flag and, and Who's Could Do, the SST bands. Yeah. So we pretty much end up at each other's shows and we were, and we play for each other. And, and I think for that reason, that's why we were supportive of, of each other because we, we saw each other <clears throat> not necessarily as, as, uh, as competitors, but as peers and also as, um, as entertainment. <laughs> no, of course. Also, it's such a weird time in music for what you guys, your earlier stuff is so different from anything that was on the radio besides your radio station. You know what I mean? It's like, there's not, it's like, it wasn't until that, like, I would say what, like early nineties, it really started breaking. Yeah. 
I mean, it was every before that it was such a huge show in music where it's like, you know, you see like the Motley Crue's and nothing against Motley Crue. I love Motley Crue, but it's the it's the show. It's the arena rock heavy metal, which is, you know, and so to see, you know, you guys take what was cool about punk, which is the do it yourself, the dark, the, the, the pogoing, the dirtiness of those shows and putting that into suddenly becoming mainstream. So, so tell me about that. That's what I really want to know is when did, what was it like, you know, what were you guys dealing with when Soundgarden started getting their first real break? Where you saw the change in money and everything and audience size. I think there were a handful of bands that were having success locally. I mean, I, I remember, I remember promoters coming up and saying, guys, this is the, this is the door record at, at the rainbow. This is the door record at the central. This is the most people this place has ever had on a Tuesday night. It's yeah. like, Next time we're going to book you on a Saturday. Weekend gig, weekend pay. Yeah. Oh my God. Not just for free beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And um, I mean, that was, a, that was a, that was a big deal, but I don't, I don't think we we're, we we're pretty, pretty uh, aware and conscious of the of the of our friends and our peers who were perfectly satisfied being the being a big fish in a little pond and being like the big man on the block. And we yeah, were, of course, that wasn't really our. You know, it's like, why do we want to be the big man on the block? We don't go to anyone's parties really. So, <laughs> so I, I, I mean, if you went to party, there'd be the guys in the really hip band. I thought. I guess I guess they've made it, you know. They're, yeah. they're, out, yeah, they're yeah. out by the keg, and everyone's talking to them. So, so I guess that's it for them. <laughs> for us, it's like I'm gonna go home and read or watch a movie. If I <laughs> what are we gonna do? They got they got prime keg location. We can't even get up there. I don't even have a cup. <laughs> but I think they were satisfied with that. They they had achieved whatever it was. You know, I don't think they I don't think they could see much beyond the keg in the backyard. Yeah. So, um. So what I guess. When the attention came from various labels, other large national indies or major labels, I don't think our audience had grown to the size that you would describe in the early 90s or late 80s. Um, I think it was certainly that way locally, but that, once again, that wasn't particularly satisfactory. Uh, we weren't content with, with, with simply having, you know, the the members of all the other bands in Seattle at our shows, you know, we, we wanted to certainly play for all the members did, of bands in Portland. Not, you know? not to cut you off, not to cut you off, but did, did everybody in the band at that time see the same, was on the same page with that vision? Yeah. Uh, well, everyone but our, um, our, our, the, our second drummer, Scott, who the guy who preceded uh, Matt and, mm -hmm. And and uh, came after Chris, right? the antecedent, right? No, uh, and uh, Scott was a little bit older than us. He had a son and he had a regular job. He couldn't make the same commitment, and was very clear about that. So at some point we had to move on. Yeah. You know? uh, but otherwise, yeah, the rest of us were all on 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 that page because we would see our friends. We'd see. We'd see people being really content, being like, it was just weird. It seemed more like there's an aspect of the satisfaction that some of our friends had, which seemed a little bit more like high school. It's like, really? Yeah. You're just, this, this is your thing? You're like, you're like you, you, you have a rich social life and get to 
party with uh, everyone in the university district right on I, for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man that's that's great that's I mean, you, we've all met people like that. I mean, but it, it's like in a band, it's like every member has to have that goal, which is just like, if we're going to do this, we're going to fucking do this. We have to give it our best. Yeah. I mean, I, not to say that it wasn't a goal. I'm sure we probably were enough. We were probably daydreamers enough that we would uh, have that, those kind of, you know, vi- you know that kind of... <laughs> delusion i suppose sure but i think i don't think we set unrealistic goals i think we just were not super sociable i was probably the most sociable guy in the band yeah (laughs) because i could make eye contact if i had to (laughs) and and i think that we just simply weren't content it's like we were you know just being the big guy at the party or, 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 or on campus, which would be the, the appropriate metaphor, I suppose, was yeah. or, or, or cliche. That, that wasn't really our thing. So I think we were always, we just liked coming up with songs and we were our own best audience. We loved it when our, when our friends and bands liked our new songs. <clears throat> and I think we had, there are bands we liked from LA, Minnesota, Austin, Portland, I think we wanted to go and play with them. You know, we wanted them to hear our songs. We wanted to hear their, we knew their stuff. I think, I think there's probably to some degree, we wanted to be part of a community that, um, that was influential to us and inspiring to us, you know, and uh, whether that was associated with a particular record label or, or, or the type of bands that would, that would be gracious enough to go out of their way to come to Seattle from, it's 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 14 hours from san francisco so for sure they made the trip and right on was there a band that you were i mean i'm not saying in direct competition with in the sense where you were like you guys you had beef with them but somebody that was like all right they just like you said nirvana put out bleach and you're like all right we have to it's almost kind of like the beach boys beatles it's like they heard so they heard pet sounds and like we have to write sergeant pepper yeah, it wasn't, not Nirvana, because we were, I mean. Way different band. Well, no, we, we loved them a lot, but they're, you know, they're a little bit younger. They came around a few years. I mean, I think. After. Yeah, I think we formed in 84, and they were like 87 or something. 80, and those few years is a big deal at that age when you're sure. in your 20s or teens. And so we're, we're, we're quite a bit bigger than them, at least in this community. And there, there were a lot of bands and there were a lot of bands that were, that were uh, bigger than them in terms of popularity and, and, and attendance and influence. They just happened to be better. They just weren't as big yet. Yeah. So when, that, when, when, when uh, uh, Nevermind broke through, what that did was catapult them onto an international stage that was not um, accessible to the rest of us. <laughs> but in terms of the the local sort of competition or, or cooperation, they weren't they weren't they weren't really they were influential, but they weren't perhaps um, the band that we were vying for. Uh, stage time with, you know, yeah. uh, 
that band would have been Green River, then later Mother Love Bone. Green River uh, was, was they, they started a few months before us and they, the guys in the band were a bit more sociable and connected with, 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 with other folks, like your Mark Arm, for, the singer for Green River, and Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard. They were a lot better at uh, just, just networking with other musicians. They're nice guys, they're, they're friendly, you know, Chris is a little bit more withdrawn and, and uh, uh, Hero had a degree of uh, aloofness. I mean, we weren't, we're nice guys, but I mean, we weren't dicks, but there was, there was, a, there's a sort of, we didn't think we were better than anybody else. We just thought that they all sucked like we did. You know, we just, yeah. we're sort of, people suck and we're not any better. I think, I think we're just, I don't want to say wallflowers. I don't want to say that we're, that we were that we thought we were better than anyone else. I think it was just some. This is a contempt we had for being human, and we were part of it. And and so I, I don't think, like I said, I was the most social guy in the band. Yeah, yeah but they need I, they I, need I one of you. <laughs> they need one of you. It's like it can't all just be like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> I just uh, this is something. You can't. It's. I mean, you can. I mean, so I assume that some people have made it this by by not being able to, you know, have any real social, you know, interaction qualities. But, but I mean, the music speaks for itself. People wanted to be around Chris. People wanted to be around Hero. They're they're smart. They're tall. They're handsome. Um, they're talented. People like girls had crushes on Chris. Girls had crushes on Hero. Um, they it, it it's they just weren't that comfortable in their skin, hanging around a bunch of other people. It's, it's hard to explain. They're, they're, they're more comfortable like behind a book or, or watching a movie yeah. or, or just be, be playing with their instrument. It's, it's, I, I know they're, I remember people thinking that like, thinking your Chris was stuck up and it's like, no, not at all. And people, it's like, well, what's, what explains his aloofness? that he'd be more comfortable if he was at home, you know, playing guitar or drums or, or that's all. It's just, I, I think there's just, I mean, I felt uncomfortable around people. So I would, I would generally, uh, <laughs> my discomfort was expressed by nervously talking, which I think people interpreted as engaging and social. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just me kind of throwing words between me and the other people on my way to the exit, you know, which I was slow to get to if there was beer around. So. That's me every day, dude. If I'm not on stage, I'm like, what am I? What? I'm, I'm still thinking of something I said three days ago. I'm just like, why, why did you ask I, that? That was, that was my MO. It was like, I go somewhere, drink a few beers, and go, why did I say that? And then wake up in <laughs> the hangover and go, oh man. And then I call my friend and go, remember when I was talking about this? Yeah. Is that dumb? So, all right. So, it is the 30th anniversary of Bad Motor Finger, which, I mean, a phenomenal record, um, really is kind of what really, really broke you guys into the stratosphere. I mean, the next record, the one we're talking about, Super Unknown, is really what did it. But Bad Motor Finger is that was the first time I had heard of you guys. I saw the Outshine video, uh, Jesus Christ pose. I could go on and on and on. I want you to tell me, you know, where were you guys at? right before you started working on on this record super unknown you know a lot of our <clears throat> with super unknown and bad motor finger the sessions are kind of split up there I, I know down on the upside had uh there was a tour somewhere in there i know we we did five <laughs> weeks with Neil young um 
that was a great tour, by the way. It's back when he had he had Steve the Colonel Cropper and Duck Dunn playing. Oh playing. wow! And uh, uh, I think it was I think it was I think it was the Booker T band, and that was in the middle of, of something. I think Super Unknown had uh, some some uh, breaks in the in the sessions as well. It might have been for for a few other projects. So. Uh, I'm trying to think of where we were before. I know we were rehearsing. We were using a Pearl Jam studio at one point. I think prior to that, you know, Chris and Hero had shared a few houses together. And when Chris split rooming with Hero, he was rooming with Andy Wood, the singer from Mother Love Bone. And I think that's what we were last talking about. Green River, Mother Love Bone. Yeah. Both, they're both really popular bands. Uh, generally, as a consequence of the popularity of, of members like Mark Arm and Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, like they're, they definitely were, were, they have better social skills than Soundgarden did. Yeah. So, <laughs> they, they would, so it was between those, those two bands, Green River and Soundgarden, and then Love Bone got together with some like with Andy from Malfunction and they had a, an initial boost. I mean, they're just the, the, the buzz about the guys from Malfunction and Green River you know, starting a new band was a big deal. Um, but at that time, Soundgarden kind of had a little jump and boost too. I, it might've been because the sub pop record, uh, Screaming Life or maybe Ultra Mega OK. So we were kind of getting buzz around the country because of these in, indie labels and, and Green River had a little bit too, but, um, so around that, those are the bands that we would kind of reference. So they're friends of ours. I went to college with Mark and, you know, met him in a modern philosophy class and he's wearing a minor threat, you know, button down shirt and brought a skateboard to class. I go, yeah, I talked to that guy. Fuck yeah. I would see his bands at, at shows and, you know, we became friends. Um, so those were kind of the two, and, and there was one band that's a little bit bigger than both of us. Um, bigger than Green River and Soundgarden, and that was the U-Men. Uh, they were like they were like the big band on the block. They were the band that you know all the other guys in bands would talk about. And, yeah, and they're you know they're, they're, they kind of had a connection with the with, with the art scene and some galleries and people who managed them or worked with them were associated with with uh, they're just cool as, as shit and hip and and you know, the the opposite of us, I guess, you know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, but both Green River and Soundgarden got pretty big and by the Love Bone and Soundgarden ended up being, we would draw more when we played than, than the U-Men, which was because of different things. I think it's the way our, our, our records were received when we made those, those indies. And um, I think the U-Men broke up at some point too. That probably helped. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. 
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. So um, I kind of digress and return to your question, then, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. then split from another question. So. No, but it's, that's great, because yeah, I, that was, it was the perfect answer for exactly what we were talking about right before we cut out. But yeah, so, so, so you guys are all starting to take off. You have two records, and then you put out Bad Motor Finger which yeah. is a classic um, and, and I definitely know, I kind of know where we're at then um, yes yeah. soup was super unknown it, it kind of came together we were doing some stuff in the studio at a vast record which is a vast recording studios what was called run by Stuart Hallerman um, an old stoner friend of heroes from high school in Chicago and, and a friend of mine who I met back then. Uh, he is, he was, he's in Seattle. He was in Olympia and started a recording studio and did all this. And, and so we'd go out there and demo. Chris was demoing some stuff at home. But at some point, we ended up in Pearl Jam space. And that's that's the connection there is that the Love Bone and, uh, and, and us, we were both really big, but we were friends of each other. You know, mm-hmm. Chris would go bike riding with, with Jeff Ament and you know, Mark and I would occasionally run into each other and talk about politics or some book. And then uh, Andy died. And Andy had been a roommate of, a housemate of Chris's. So he went from living with Hero to living with Andy. And then they split. And Chris went, you know, to be with his uh, girlfriend. And Andy was with his girlfriend. And Andy OD'd. And that was, uh, that was just a real heavy shock to everyone. Yeah. It just knocked everyone on their ass. Um, it was it was definitely uh, upsetting. Um, so, Love Bone was done. Pearl Jam kind of formed out of the ashes. They had a rehearsal studio downtown, underneath a, a gallery. I think it was I think it was Galleria Potato Head is what it was called. <laughs> and we had kind of didn't really have a rehearsal space because Chris. Didn't we didn't have the house that he and Hero had had, or he and Andy had? Uh, we ended up rehearsing at Pearl Jam space on the days they weren't there. Matt was not a member of Pearl Jam at the time, so so we'd go down their basement and and would write songs, uh, listen to home tapes that Chris made or or that Matt made. And I never did that. I would just bring in riffs, go. So here's the idea. Here's the B part. <laughs> I would just memorize it and show it to them. And once yeah. I showed it to Matt, it wouldn't be forgotten. Because <laughs> no, it goes like this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that part. Um, and that was it. We, we'd work on songs there and we thought we had enough songs to start uh, getting an album. I'm making myself out of frame. Yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> you're good. That, that's probably where we, that's probably what we, what we were doing then. Then we started talking about producers, and a few producers' names came up that uh, I remember vetoing a few. What I and I remember uh, Chris and Matt and Ben vetoing a few. We decided on Michael Beinhorn. Then he came up to sit in on our jam, listen to some demos, and watch us play. And then 
threw in his two cents and we thought we could probably live with him because he's just going to be in the background anyways. We, we were a little bit arrogant that way. We would kind of think, well, it's whatever we decide we want to do is what we're going to do. So really you can just get anyone up here to produce it. They'll just be over, they'll be over there. And, you know, yeah. As long as they're inobtrusive, it'll be fine. <laughs> So what, what was the writing process like? I mean, was everybody on the same page? It sounds like everybody was on the same page, but were, were there arguments? Did, like, how did the band kind of settle an argument? There were disagreements. There's rarely arguments. I mean, from, from, from the earliest days, when we were just a three-piece, Hero and Chris and I would have arguments about arrangements of songs. Um, the arguments were always constructive. They always led to a better you know, a, a better insight into the song or where we should go, but it was just convincing the other people, you know, and sometimes you're wrong. You, you do a song live a few times and think, you know what? I think your idea was a little bit better. I don't think this is working. Let's go back and do it the other way. Um, so that was, that was all part of the, of the process, the democratic constructive working out of, of what we're doing. I think, you know, so, so more often than not, there were beneficial uh, consequences to, to, the, to, that, to, to the process. Um, uh, I'm trying to think about super unknown. There was definitely, I think some of the arguments would have been whether a song should be included or not. For instance, we might all love a song. It's like, but is it a Soundgarden song? It's like, yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that if that was on the new GNR record or the new U2 record. And, yeah. You know, and, but I don't know if that'd be, if that's us. It's like, well, it can be us. Well, how? Or should we just, there's, there's stuff that I remember not liking, like around Loud and Love or Bad Motorfinger that, you know, an album or two later, I ended up thinking, no, this is great. This will work. You know, stuff stuff that didn't seem right in Loud and Love or Bad Motor Finger that was just perfect for Super Unknown or Down the Upside and vice versa. You know, we'd, we'd revisit things. How many hold, How many holdovers did you have? How many songs were already kind of like, yeah, from just for Super Unknown? Like, how many were you like, all right, well, I feel like this is the wreck. Well, because really the question is, is like how you, so Bad Motor Finger's out. It's got its sound. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and Super Unknown is a way more mature record than yeah. Bad Motor Finger. You know, it's, it's, it's really where it's taking that Soundgarden sound and then also like still taking it in a prog rock progression. There's still some heavy metal. There's still some punk rock stuff with like kickstand. Do you know what I mean? So there's, it's still, it's, it's different. Like, did you guys going in, go into it basically knowing like, all right, this is, we want to make this record way different than Bad Motor Finger. Um, we always wanted to move forward, but we'd look at the material we had. It just so happened the material would move forward. Um, yeah. As our tastes change and shift, as our interests and abilities change and shift, you know, there's, you know, Chris was getting much better and prolific as a songwriter. You know, in the early days, he didn't write as much, uh, except for he'd write lyrics, mm -hmm. which makes sense. It's, hard for, I, it, it must be, when I think about bands where the primary lyricist is not the singer, I just imagine what it's like to put words in someone else's mouth and have some yeah. guy sing someone else's words. So he was great for lyrics, but he, you know, he wasn't as 
good on guitar. He was great on drums. But so, so writing riffs and chords kind of took him more time. But by Bad Motorfinger, he was super prolific. I think, it, I think he learned a lot from his relationship and friendship with Andy Wood. You know, Andy would just, don't edit yourself. Just write it, put it out there. It'll, it'll become something or the band will help you or you can revisit it. Just don't edit it. Don't stop. Just put stuff out there. And Chris, when Andy passed, you know, you just see Chris go snap and he just started, he just started throwing ideas out and he wouldn't, he wouldn't second guess them. You know, everyone's a little bit of a cynic. So you might, might you might hesitate or want, don't want Matt and, and, and Hero and Chris to hear this riff. Nah, they're not going to like it. You know, throw it out and bring something else in, you know? Yeah. Um, and everyone did that. And Chris did that. He was very self-conscious, you know? And, and, and at that point, you know, after, you know, right before Bad Motorfinger, he said, you know, fuck it. What, I don't know what's in Kim's head or what's in Matt's head. You know, it's like, I don't, you know, I, I'm second guessing myself. I'm just going to play it for them, see what they think. And, and he'd get surprised sometimes. Like we'd love a song that he thought was, that, that he was, wasn't sure we'd like, you know, and we'd end up loving it, it becomes part of the set we recorded. And Super Unknown was like, was like that, you know, it's just, I think the only thing that we read, that I could think of that we revisited was Spoon Man. When Spoon Man was part of that, uh, that was kind of on the Bad Motorfinger period when we were doing the, the we were, did singles, Chris, wrote a you demoed a handful of songs for for the Poncier tape which is basically something did i think initially as a as a gift for Cameron Crowe and it's like you saw a list of of uh, fake song titles that Jeff Ament had made and Chris thought it'd be funny to write songs with those titles yeah <laughs> and just what would those sound like and and he kind of did it you know over a period of time and and then presented them to Cameron and then Jeff and then to uh, the band, me and Matt and and Ben and they listened to him and but yeah you know Flutter Girl's not very Soundgarden-y and you know um, disappearing it's kind of, these are all cool songs but you just you just wouldn't have seen them on Bad Motorfinger right and then Matt was the one uh, sometime before Super Unknown where he 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 came into practice he goes you know what guys. I've been listening to the Ponchier tape and there's one song there that I think really I'd love to play. And I think it'd be perfect for Soundgarden once we did it. And it was Spoon Man. And, and he, he really insists. I go, you think so? And it had been like a, maybe a year. And I thought, I don't, you know, I don't know if any, any of that Ponchier tape is really, really us, you know? And Matt said, no, let, let, let's work on Spoon Man. Let's figure it out and do that. Because I think that's us. We did it, we learned it. It was still kind of like, you had to get over the, the, the prejudice, the initial judgment of the song from you know, a couple of years before. And uh, we did, <laughs> eventually we recorded it. It's like, I can't imagine not playing that song. I cannot yeah. imagine that not being a Soundgarden song. But it took a while, you know, it, it, when, when Chris wrote it, it, was, it wasn't with us in mind. You know, it, was, it was this other thing in mind. So yeah, it took a while. Yeah, what were some of the harder songs to write on the record? Um, one of the hardest songs to learn was was Limo Wreck.
lot of weird time signatures. Got some cool moves in there. Uh, you have to ask the individuals. I I would think it'd be difficult to write Black Hole Sun. Um, yeah, because it's not. It's very singer songwriting. It's kind of piano-y. It's not a spontaneous song that would jump off your guitar. It's not a blues riff. You know, it's not a punk rock riff. Um, it does. It doesn't. There's not a natural groove to it. It's definitely composed with a vocal in mind. It's a. It, you could. There's there's probably guitar riffs in there that 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 provoked and stimulated the songwriting, but it's definitely you can see how it's framing the vocal. You know, Chris isn't one. He is he's not one to be super divulgent about that. Maybe after a few beers, he he might have said something to me. But then, like I said, it was a few beers. And I might have forgotten the next day. But I'd imagine that'd be a little bit more difficult. It's not a pick up a guitar and. and and whip out this riff or look what I just learned. It's, it's, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was just something about it was definitely assembled. What was the, what was like the vibe in the, in the, the studio when, cause he brought that to you guys. Right. So yeah. when he brings that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's probably the most ballady sound garden song you've had yeah. up to that point. Uh, and it was much darker, much out there. It's not, it's not, when I say ballad, I'm just saying, you know. I know, I mean, I know what you're saying. It's got the arpeggiated verses. And yeah. the, the little, it sounds like a little piano part. Like, da, 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 da. Yeah. And, and then it has a big crescendo, like a, like a Stairway to Heaven or Dream On, if things get kind of heavy and a crazy guitar solo. Um, when he brought that in, well, for one, it was, it, it was Sam's guitar solo. I mean, he probably had some, he probably recorded some guitar effects, like with some delay just to indicate like, yeah, that should be trippy and crazy or something. And uh, so we would have just heard the verse and choruses and focus on that. And my initial response probably would have been, this is, an, this is an amazing song. This is catchy and hooky. I don't see us in it. And I think everyone kind of was the same thing. I, I think, um, you know, Matt and Ben thought everyone just loved the song. This is a great song. How do we fit in this song? Yeah. And I remember Hero came by the studio. He was, you know, he was he'd been out of the band for four or five years, but he came by and, and I think Matt played him the demo and Hero just started laughing. He goes, Oh shit, that's your hit. That thing. And he said the wow. same thing he heard smells like teen spirit. He's like, that thing's a hit. That's it. He heard dude. Michael and he goes, That's your hit, you guys. He goes, are you going to do that song? And we're like, I think we love the song. It was such a good song. I'm trying to make an observation that doesn't sound like I'm patronizing. Patronize. You know, feel free patronize. to patronize. Any, any particular gender. Do you, do you remember in, when you're in high school, you're a teenager, junior high would be even better. Remember the junior high girl yeah. who would like come with, come to school with some really loud clothing, like she's experimenting and being grown up. And it just didn't fit her, but it was probably cool, but not appropriate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Other girls like that. And then and it's, it's like, it's like they're going from being kids to adults and they're wearing things that probably look really great on the rack, but then you have to put it on a human being <laughs> and not look like a, like a fucking road flare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you see that at this at the mall at every school. Well, I think that was it. It was it was like 
this looks, this song sounds really cool. Is it going to fit on us? It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool right there. But, it, you know, once we start, once we put this thing on, yeah. is it, is it, does it, is, if we, if we take it out there wearing this thing, is it us? And I think we took it as a challenge. We took it as a challenge to learn the song, make it ours. And, and we did. And I think we would not have done that had we not liked the song. The fact that we liked the song, we didn't think it was a fit, we made it fit. We said, let's let's learn it, let's see if we make it ours. And and we did. I think for me personally, I think it was it was coming up with the two different guitar solos that kind of added an element which was that wasn't necessarily it wasn't there. The you know, that kind of wildness and, and the chaos. It's like everything seems so organized and there and floral and pretty and and then we add a part add parts that make it sound like it's falling apart. And then, yeah. then it's more soundguard. I mean, yeah, but you, I mean, besides like having Hero say that this is your hit, I mean, did you ever expect it to be, I mean, arguably the most recognized, it's, it's arguably in the top 10, you know, I'd say songs in the 90s, definitely in the top, I think, could be, I think it's the top song. I think Rolling Stone Magazine put it as like the number one song. No, Smell Like Teen Spirit is number one, but I'm pretty sure uh, Black Hole Sun is like, in, in, if they're not two, it's number three as one of the most popular and best songs of the grunge era. It's probably definitely memorable and, and up there. Well, like I said, we knew it was a great song. It was just a matter of whether it was a great Soundgarden song. Um, and, it, and, it, and it is, it was. Yeah. But initially that, 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 that was the, that was a concern in the heart. Sure. We didn't want to be the dress that entered the classroom before the person. <laughs> yeah. Did you, so what about with the sequencing of the record? I mean, like, you know, like, like whose decision, like how did you guys start like laying out all these tracks? Cause you have, you know, I guess, you know, fell on black days is, is kind of, it's not, I wouldn't call that a ballad either. I mean, they're both, I mean, I guess they're both the two ballads of the record, but they're much darker. So it's like, so how did you start laying out the tracks? Cause you had recorded how many, cause there's what 15 on the yeah. track. There's 15 on the album coming yeah. in at 70 minutes. Yeah. You know, and, so, and, so and the, and of course the vinyl release had the, had the bonus of, and the vinyl international releases, we included the bonus song she likes surprises so yeah which is great yeah dude hey you do you have any plans this year <laughs> how's that going do you get 2020 well welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020 where myself benny goodman and my good friends Corey Pazin and siobhan cronin from the band lost symphony also got 2020 and since the world ended this year we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing we're gonna get a candid look at life on and off the stage as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry new episodes drop every sunday and wednesday at 9 p.m Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-d.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Um, so how did you start like laying out the record once you had all the songs? Well, I should, I should also ask you, what was the easiest to record? Because I said what's to write, but I was saying more, what I really meant was to record. What were the hard ones and the easiest ones to record? Huh. Hmm. I think Spoonman was somewhat straightforward. I guess if you ask the producer... He'd have to turn around and record a bunch of spoons. He had to record artists, <laughs> you know, spoon solo, make sure that, that had, you know, whatever sibilance and 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 you know pronunciation. Yeah. Um, for me, you know, super unknown since you know I wrote most of the riffs in that song. You know, th- it was pretty easy for me to whip that out. But 
Uh, by the way, can I just, I'm going to stop you right there. It's super nice. My, that's my favorite song on the record. Cause when that oh, shit, cool. dude, when that, like, I've been listening to this record for years, but I've been really digging into it recently. And when it, when, when that drum just hits it, it's like, if you don't want, and it just fucking goes. It's, I mean, I thank God I haven't been driving recently because that's a, that's an 80, 90 mile hour ticket, dude. Wow. I, <laughs> it is a perfect driving song. It rips, it rules. And it's one of those gems that, you know, if you just stick to what's what's popular and what's been played on the radio, you're gonna hear great songs. But it's when you dive in, I almost think that the songs that weren't the the singles are your best songs on that record. Wow, cool. That that's kind of how I listen to records too. That I usually it was all the deeper cuts. Maybe maybe you would agree with me about this. Like when I listened to a band I liked, it was rarely ever the singles, always something else on the album that would catch me. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because I heard it less frequently or if I was better able to make it mine, if there's something personal about, you know, uh, either uncovering that particular track or, or uh, I'm just carrying it with you. Like it's like, you know, this is, hey, this is my, uh, this is my song or, mm -hmm. or you know, you know. Oh, for sure. Like th this, the other one belongs to, belongs to the world you know it's, it's out there this this one's mine oh i'm 100 I'm like that i mean I, I listen i i'm always the guy that's like i get to the band early and then when they blow up i'm like yeah you should have heard the stuff they did a while ago i mean that's the cool stuff dude yeah i think i think i've done that definitely um it's it's cool mike mccready loves uh super unknown i think that's his favorite track I mean, there's if you're opening the record with "Let Me Drown," which is a banger, and "My Waves" a banger, and then you—it's almost like you're building like a perfect mixtape. You know, when you're sequencing a record, it's like you come out strong, you hit them with another one, then you bring it down. You do "Fell on Black Days." So, yeah. like when you started laying out all of these songs, like was there arguments of where they went? Was this the producer oh, with backlisting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. In the early days, um, it was a little bit more collaborative. Maybe leaned a little bit more toward me how the how the songs would be laid out. You know, I would I would tend to argue for you know well, you you want to start the album with a big punch, something usually got some energy and you know it's visceral and quick. You want to start that way usually, not with your 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 necessarily with your your hit or or with the ballad or whatever. Yeah, and. You want, I was thinking of vinyls, you want vinyl, you want the disc side to open and close with something that's memorable, it stays with you. So they end it outside A and they have to go to the store. You want that song to be something that's strong and stays with them. So now you have to judge what songs will do that. What, what songs do you feel are, are strong? Because if you're making the album, at some point, hopefully, you believe that that all the all the material there is strong, right? Yeah. So at some point, you have to appraise that. You kind of look at what everyone thinks. Um, by by Bad Motor Finger, you know, even though I was like the DJ, and, and so I had that early influence. Later on, Chris started uh, leaning more toward what he would like in terms of the segue because he had a sense of the. Uh, the, the dynamic through uh, vocal performance and key changes. Like to him, it, it, it would be, we don't want to put too many songs next to each other that are in D or that are in, in E um, or in the same register. So he would think about moving it dynamically that way. 
But then live, it, it, it came down to Matt became the catcher. He'd call the pitch. He'd say, well, this works dynamically in terms of tempo, in terms of energy, you know? So he is, Chris might've come up with the, with the track listing for the album. And then every show, Matt would come up with the set list. And then we'd have to, you know, we'd have to look at, and because he's thinking about his energy and like, and he's understanding the show in terms of what he's putting out, you know, fast songs, slow songs, what songs are, what songs are better to get out of the way early, what songs are a little bit more demanding for him. And, and he's not sure he'd have the energy for Jesus Christ pose in, in, in the encore, you know, things like that. So he, he worked things up dynamically in terms of tempo and, and, uh, and, and, and the drums. And it made sense. I would have to interject things such as all these songs, Matt, are in different tunings. I will be walking to my guitar tech and getting a new guitar every song. Yeah. You guys will be in a groove. You'll be starting a song and I'll be taking a swig of Jack Daniels and getting a new guitar put on. And it's going to look really stupid for me to leave the stage after every song. Every song. So let's, let's, okay, how do we do that? Well, let's bunch them together. Here's some D tunings. Here's some D, G, D, G. Here's the E, B, B tunings. Let's get those at least blocked together so I can hold on to a, a guitar for three or four songs. And then within that context, you know, Matt would come up with the uh, dynamics of the tempo and, and, uh, and things like that. And then Chris would interject, you know what? Too many of these songs in a row are in my register, in the same, re in the same register, and it's, gonna, it's going to make it dynamically boring. You're start losing people. So they were each thinking about what was of interest to them in, in keeping things flowing and dynamic. And we'd all work together that way. And once Matt had that understanding of what I'm doing, you know, and, and with, the, with the different key changes, uh, uh, tuning changes, and what Chris is doing in terms of him, what's keys singing in, then Matt was just, he was the guy. He, like, yeah. he what everyone was doing. He'd, he'd make the calls. And on the studio records, for the most part, Chris would lay it out. And then we'd say the same thing. It's like, it's like you know what? We should end with something a little bit more uh, aggressive, you know, a little bit, little bit heavier and, and, and hooky on, on this thing. So you'd think, so yeah, just flip these two songs around. It's like, are you sure? And then we talk about it. It's like, okay. So... I'm that was that. In the last last few records, Chris would do the track listing, and and live it was Matt. But early on, it was the DJ. <laughs> I it's it's I'm looking at the track listing right now, and and it's just it's just it's I think it's just it's just listed. Every song is in the right place. You Let know. If we did it all over again, it would still start Let Me Drown. I, I you know, I, I was, I would say, because I was always like, God, I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't open up Super Unknown with Super Unknown because it just bangs so hard. And it's, but like, Let Me Drown really is the thesis statement yeah. of this record. You're getting, you're getting the vibe of what you're getting. You're getting like, you know, deeper, darker lyrics too. And, and it's like, it's setting you up for, for this journey, which is like, I mean, to go from that into my wave and into fell in fell on black days. I mean, it, it's it, it's just it's it's perfect. It's perfect. It, it, you're right. It's it's perfect to end with you know, like suicide and, and yes. start with start with let me drown. Um, and, and everything else 
it, there are other things that we would consider. We, we, would, we would think about what the likely singles might be. Uh, we had our, our, our own instincts. The record label, once they heard what we were doing, they throw in their two cents, usually to, the man, to our manager, Susan Silver, at the time. And then Susan would say, hey, Al and Jim, you know, Al, Al Cafaro and Jim Guerino at, at uh, the label, they really think that Fell on Black Days is going to be going to be a strong single. It's like, okay, well, if these songs have the attention already, we know, I know as a, as a, as a, as a record and rock fan, since I was a kid, the first song on the record is like the one that's going to stay with me when I go to school the next day. And you could distribute the interest in the record that way. You could have the singles. The singles are, they're going to hear that everywhere. You can put that in the middle if you want to of, of, of the album, but then you want them to like the whole damn thing. You know, it, it's, it's not, it's not a single and a bunch of, you know, filler. It's just, you know, that it's, I mean, the, yeah, in the seventies there are bands that definitely made albums like that. Here are the hits and everything else is filler. Oh Yeah. And, and, and the label would treat it like that. It's like, here, here, do a few covers and do that one song for a B-side. But everything had to be strong for us, with us or, or we shouldn't put it on the record. So then it's like, okay, this is not, probably not going to be a single, Let Me Drown. But it's strong. Let's put it in, let's put it in front. Let, let's end with this. This may not be a single either. It could be, but it's way too long. I don't see how we can edit it for radio. Let's put that at the end. Um, and then on the back cover of Super Unknown, it's like that was that was Chris's title. And most prior to that, most of the titles were uh, all mine. And then he suggested Super Unknown. And it was like that is amazing. <laughs> and, and, yeah, then he, yeah, yeah. and and and, uh, and then we did the song. And it was the same thing. It's like well, it may not be a single. And it probably was to start with Let Me Drown. And then I came up with the graphic idea. It's like, well, in the back, we have the, we have the songs, the, the track list. We'd have just be black on black, or what do we do, gray on black, or white on black, depending on where we marketed it. And we'll just put the song, Super Unknown, highlight it in, in a different color, in, in yeah. yellow. And, that, and that's the way we title it. Because we'd already done that before. with Screaming Life, band name on the front, um, album name on the back, Loud and Love, band name on the front. Uh, album title on the back, right? Yeah, so so super unknown band name on the front on the back track list, and the album title is in, is implied by by highlighting super unknown. I remember there was some resistance to that. That I, I remember, I think our or then our then manager Susan said, but then people they'll be give they'll give too much emphasis to uh to that one song. It's not likely going to be a single. It's like. No, well, that's the album title. It's also on the spine. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. A, and so we, we did it that way. And, and now, now you have, which my point was, is that you have the singles, so there are five of them. You have the song that kicks it off, and the song that ends, and you have the song that's highlighted in yellow. So you're, you're giving some weight to, that you're redistributing it around the album in terms of people's, you know, its emphasis, at least with the, how the, the listener might, you know, file things cognitively. Sure. What was, you mentioned network notes. Well, besides, because I was looking over the singles, because, I mean, I had a TV show, the goddamn Comedy Jam, the network notes ruined my TV show. Um, but, yeah. see, I'm looking at the singles and the way they released, Kim. I mean, you have Spoon Man first, The Day I Tried to Live, In the Black Hole Sun, 
uh, My Wave and Fell on Black Days. You said Fell on Black Days was the one that they were like, this is the fucking hit. But you're coming out with Spoon. They knew Black Sun was a hit, but they, they knew Fell on Black Days probably would also be strong as well. Which, which I mean, all of us, it's like all of these songs are played on, on WHFS, the radio station in DC that I grew up listening to, you know, DC 101. It, it's all, all of this is like, I've heard all of these on there, but you know, besides them recommending trying to get that as the first single, was there any network notes that just, you're like, thank God we didn't do it. And what was the most ridiculous one, if you can remember? Wait, would you say network notes? You mean like from the label? Or- from the label. Yeah, yeah. I just called it, I put it in television terms. You know, they were pretty good about letting us do what we we what we you wanted to do. By and large, um, they really wanted us to be on the Grammys and to play "Black Hole Sun" on the Grammys. And we vetoed that because they were emphasizing you're going to play for a billion people worldwide. It's like, then why would we want a billion people hear us play our you know power ballad? Yeah, you want to rock. Should they they know? You got the name Soundgarden, and we come up with Black Hole Sun. What are they going to think? There were some, you know, there were some keyboard synthesizer power ballad song or something, or band, or or should we go on the Grammys and do Spoonman or My Way? And they really said, "Well, Black Hole Sun's nominated." It's like, yeah, but so Spoonman. They push Black Hole Sun. I said, I don't know. And they go a billion people. I go billion people getting the wrong brand. And so we didn't do it. And it was the same thing with uh, uh, the single release. They wanted to release Fell on Black Days because it was getting a lot of attention at radio. But I think we had just done Black Hole Sun. I said, we got to get another rock song out there. And if we do Black Hole Sun and Fell on Black Days, it's like it's you're giving this album an identity that might be a little bit different from the majority of the band's material. Yeah. I wanted to get my wave out there. And there was some resistance, mostly because radio was picking up on Fallen Black Days, but they did it. They released my wave as a single and it wasn't received as strongly as Fell on Black Days, of course. And uh, they followed it up with Fell on Black Days. So well, You said about not being received as strongly. Did you see a change in your audience? Because obviously you had to. You had to with a song like Black Hole Sun. You're going to get fans that are, it's pop. It's a, it becomes, it's a rock song. But mm. you know what I'm saying. It became, yeah. it's so popular that it transcends the grunge kids. It's now, because yeah. I remember, Lord, I'm going to give her a shout out. Lauren Rostek, uh, I'll never forget our day at the pool. Uh, I'm not going to go into that, but Lauren Rossick was the one that, that played Black Hole Sun for me. And I was like, fuck, man, because I only knew Outshine at that point. And it's a different sound. So what did you see in the change, you know, besides just record sales? Because you sold, if I'm not mistaken, nine million uh, from this record. Uh, so I like that much, but maybe, maybe worldwide. Maybe yeah, worldwide. That's what it yeah. says. Oh, wait, it's blah, 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 certified five times platinum. Uh, worldwide, nine million. So wow. it's yeah, it's your most successful record. So obviously, you're start you're gonna see a different change and a divot in in the people coming to your shows and buying shit and getting compliments from. So yeah, the, the demographic definitely changed. Um, you know, I, you know, early on, you had the kids with the uh, sleeveless denim jacket with uh, maybe Motorhead or Black Flag. Yeah, yeah. Boat on the back. You know what I'm saying? I'm wearing that tonight at the comedy cellar, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the kids in the front row, right? Maybe, maybe a leather jacket and a black uh, 
sleeveless denim or, or a rock t-shirt. And then by, by Super Unknown, those kids were probably out in the parking lot in the hood of their car, or they're not going to see Soundgarden anymore. And so you saw a lot more, lot more women in the front row parked in front of the singer, yeah. right? Um, you still got those guys in the show, but they weren't in the front anymore. They're kind of you couldn't afford it. Yeah, lot. dude. They're up, they're up, they're they're a heavy metal parking lot, bro. They're like, <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that was a change in the orientation at the show. People who perhaps weren't there early on supporting us, perhaps because their interests weren't as musicians or 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 uh, just whatever rock dude identity. <laughs> Uh, that's our changing. You get more frat boys and more housewives when you get a top 40 hit. I mean, yeah. It's just the way it is. It's, it, it was that way for Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and it was that way for us. Um, so your fans are often like you. If you're an honest band and you're not pandering, you're playing music that is, that is you're writing songs that are about you from where you come from to people that come from a similar place and are about, you know, and, and, and our audience could have been me or Chris or Hero or, or the guys in Mudhoney or the guys in the Screaming Trees or Nirvana. That's who our crowd was. And it was that way for years. Now it was people who maybe made my espresso in the morning or, 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 or a friend of my mom's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or someone who's in the, you know, not the person in the philosophy class with me, but the person who's maybe in the business class across the campus, you know. Yeah. It was just, it was just, it was just people you, you can identify perhaps de demographically, but not people you necessarily associated with. They weren't perhaps part of your, your scene or your subculture. So yeah, that little subculture thing bursts open and you get, and you get people from different walks of life. And, and that's both, that's both, uh, it's mostly good. I, I, I don't think there's too much. There's nothing bad. Yeah. It's just more money, more like you're still cool. You're still making badass music. You, you know don't want to lose your identity. You know, and you don't want to all of a sudden say, those are the people I play for. You still got to play for yourself and the people who you are and the people who are, are like you. I mean, otherwise you're, you're pandering and you're, and what you're doing is probably dishonest. If, you're, if you, if you keep attending to yourself and, and your peers, then that, that should be your, I think that should be your first audience. I think, well, I think, you know, even going into your next record down on the upside, I mean, you, you, if I'm not mistaken, cause I don't have the track listing in front of me, but you open up with pretty hate was pretty hate or pretty paid. Pretty. Uh, the, what pretty news thank you yeah you open up with that i mean that's like you're you're going right back to rock again and i mean there's like there's a couple more down tempo songs on that but it's like it's just it's just you guys pushing a little bit further you know for for that record so it wasn't like you just kept writing black hole suns right you know what i mean it's like you know you're like no we're a rock band and we're gonna stay that way yeah um yeah dude it's it, it, it's still the easiest sell i mean if yeah. if, if chris or or, 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 or Matt or I came to practice with a song, you know, you know, it's going to be received well if it's, if it's, you know, <laughs> A, if it's rock and B, it's something we haven't done before or heard before, you know, we, I think we'd get, it must be short attention spans, but if we, we brought a song to practice and it's like, you know, this kind of sounds like the song that we did before, kind of sounds like a song from this album. It's like, yeah. Ooh, you know, maybe you're right. You know, let's change it up a bit. We wanted everything to have its own identity and to be distinct. We avoided formulas within ourselves. 
you know. And yeah. sometimes it was odd time signatures or different tunings or an arrangement that was that was unique. Like Rusty Cage is an insanely cool arrangement. So the cool. way that song moves, you know, just, I mean, linearly, just going like this, this fast thing and then this, uh, you know, ending with that weird, heavy, off-time groove. That's that's just a cool arrangement. It's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. No. We, we always did things to keep it interesting, especially if you can keep Matt interested. When you get a god drummer like, like like Matt is, who's, who's both very focused and also gets easily bored. <laughs> if he, if you can, if you can keep him interested, and 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 then then, then you did your job. You can get a guy like if, if he can see something musically engaging in in what you're doing, then you've done something. And and the same all around. You know, if I wrote something, I'd want to impress Ben, Matt, and Chris. Chris wrote something, you want to impress me, Matt, and Ben. It's, so. And that was it, you know, nah. so you, can't, you can't do the same thing. Oh, who is, wait, who, because I got to ask, and I know we're going to wrap up soon, but who is, who's always, who was always the first one to go? Let's put this in a different time signature. Who's, who's the odd time signature guy in the band? Uh, we never did that. Except <laughs> for the song Heretic. And it was me who argued with Chris and Hero. But we never did that because songs were just, we'd often not know. We, we, we just, you know, a, a song kind of moves and grooves in a way that you might walk. If you, you should be able to walk it. And odd time signatures, people don't walk in, but <laughs> you might you might think that way or, or talk that way. Yeah. And there's a there's a way that a song grooves, and it's the way you dance or walk. And you can kind of imagine it walking, or or and. We're not, none of us are good dancers. So it's in your head. And there's, there's a way you move in your head. And it's very natural. We bring it to the band. We learn it. And someone might have a little, you know, a little, a little knot in trying to learn it. It's like, what's going on there? You know, what? It's like, oh, well, it does this. Like, oh, I see it. Cool. What time signature is that in? Huh. And then either I would sit there and go, or Matt would sit there and go, we come up with a different number. I think it's six. Really? I think it's, I don't know, man. I think it's just three and it's doing this up. Then we listen to it again. And we wait, spend a little bit of time on that. Go, I don't know. It's either three or six. Okay. We'll ask somebody <laughs> and we leave it at that. So, so we didn't, we never changed the time signature. We change arrangements. We change tempos, but the time signature is usually the groove that it was written in. And the guy writing the groove generally wouldn't know until there was some, insight or consensus from the rest of the band, usually directed by Matt, occasionally me. Um, I'd learned how to count that crap because my mom was a, you know, was a, was a music teacher. My best friend uh, plays saxes and he would show me those things. Like he tried to teach me how to play a Herbie Hancock song and I wouldn't be able to learn like how to yeah. play a counter. And he'd like sit there and count it out for me. It's like, uh, I don't get it. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm 18 and 19 and I can only play Louie Louie. <laughs> But it was those things. It was just those guys sitting with me going here. And, and uh, um, the song Heretic, the chorus part of that is in three, the kind of roles. And I remember Hero thinking that why are we doing this like that? Why don't we just do it like this? And he started doing it in four. Because that seems more natural to me. And I go, does it? threes are really natural and, and I think I think this way kind of rolls 
And Chris was like, I agree with Hero. You know, it feels better in, in, in four. And I go, but it seems stiff. It seems they do it in four. This chorus, if you if you listen to song Heretic, it's in three. It's, the verse I think is in four. The chorus is in like three from my memory. And they really wanted to change it to like where it was just four. They thought that was more natural. And I, to me, who had wrote the song, it felt blocky in four. And I kept telling them, we did it that way for a bit, and then I came back to practice, I go, and I told them, it feels unnatural in four, it feels blocky. And they're like, really, what's wrong with you? I go, I just think it should roll there, it should just kind of go like this. And then we went back, we recorded it both ways, we listened to it, and, and Chris, the drummer, uh, said, you know, I think Kim's right. I think it does roll like this. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of cool. Let's let's do it in three. And that's why we did it ever since. But that was the only argument we really had about time signatures. The time signature that the song had was what whoever wrote the riff and how they presented it. We never really had to change it. We liked it. We liked the groove. It was the way we walked. <laughs> yeah, it had some. Sometimes it just has to be that way. It has to. Outshine couldn't be any other way. And and I yeah. mean, it's it's just perfect. Seven, right? Yeah, Thanks. dude. Uh, I mean, I I can't tell you the reaction I got from those two guys in my band when they were like, "We're not trained monkeys." Do you understand how hard that song? It's not. It's not just one, two, three, four. It's like I was like, okay, I didn't realize. I'm sorry. We still we were about to cover it for Skankfest, and then. I was like, ah, let's let's open with uh, Slipknot. I was like, this crowd is like a bunch of juggalos. You know, <laughs> they'll be they'll they'll be really happy. We're but we're gonna do Outshine. Um, all right, let's let's get you out of here. Let's do, do this. Has been great. Um, I have some rapid questions. We ask all the guests. Uh, the yours are going to be slightly different, but I'm still going to fucking ask them. Um, all right, the first question is, uh, what is your favorite song on this album? On Super No. That changes as we grow and change, you know. It's changed certainly over, what is it now, 25, 28 years, 26 years, something like that. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I revisit a song. When I think of Super Unknown, the song that pops into my head is Limo Wreck. There's something about that. It's the guitar. It's when Matt brought that demo of that in, it was just, it was just amazing. It was, it was colorful, it moved so oddly. It, when hearing it, when playing it, it felt so natural. It took me a while to learn that thing. It took Chris a while, it took everyone. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and Matt was showing us that. And we try not to be in weird time signatures. We try not to be, we don't want to be awkward. It's just, it's, it's just, you kind of get into this groove and you want to share it with people. and. And that one was so trippy and it had and the little harmonics that I play create these kind of cool colors. And when I think of that album, that's what comes to my mind. If I think about playing, I get a different sense. The song Fourth of July is, is I, I love listening to that song. Um, it's, it's kind of tough to play because the tuning is such that it's really easy to, to voice those chords off you know it's like like it's hard to make it sound you know sonorous and, and mellifluous <laughs> it's real easy to fuck it up because of the tuning it's real easy to make that chord and have it go dang. and uh, the song it, 
Fourth, Fourth of July is amazing. Um, and like Suicide's amazing. I mean, back then when we recorded it, it really moved me. It was, it was, it, it evoked a lot, an emotive response for me um, right off the bat. Though, if you, if you think, but I think Limo Rec is paradigmatic of that album for me, because if you were to say, hey, this album, Super Unknown, that's kind of the song that pops into my head is Limo Rec. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's paradigmatic of the album for me, but not necessarily the, the uh, my favorite. It, it likely it's Fourth of July or like Suicide. What's your favorite to play though at a, at a live show? If you have to play one of the oh, play, yeah, to play to play probably, live, probably ten- Super Unknown. Oh fuck yeah, dude! Fuck yeah, dude! Um, all right, this is a weird one because we never asked somebody that's that's been a part of the record uh, this question. Well, the next two actually. Um, what song on this record do you skip over? <laughs> Black Hole Sun. Really? It's, it's just you've heard it so fucking much. You're just like, yeah, all ah, right. I've heard it so much. And, and that's that's not an appraisal of the merits of the song. That's an appraisal of my familiarity with it. And, and it, like you said, it's a little, it's a little downtime. And I might skip over it. If I'm listening to the album, I might skip over it two out of three times. And the third time, I give it top to bottom listen, you know. Yeah, I listen to the solo. I listen to depth, and I go, yeah, that's that's to remind myself of 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 why, you know, why that song's great or strong. But um, there's got to be something else I'm going to skip over. (laughs) It's probably Black Hole Song because it's Black Hole Song. It's a song that is that I've heard without intent. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a song that's been imposed upon me the most. You know, yeah. like you're here to, you know, at a at a at a rock show or a radio or or at someone's. You know, it's it's just one of those houses that that is kind of imposed. One of those songs that's imposed upon you, let's say, at someone's house or a commercial establishment. So it'd be most likely to skip. It's like, no, nah, I know it. No, yeah, it's transcended. It's transcended the record. It's it's it, you you hear that song. It reminds you, you know, for a lot of people, it reminds you of a time in your life. I mean, it was just it was everywhere. The music video on the radio, everything. And it's you know, it's an incredible song. But I get it, totally get it. This one I'm excited about to ask you: What song on this record would you fuck to? <laughs> We just talked about the time signatures, right? <laughs> I know. Walk to it. <laughs> I know, but you got to fuck to one. <laughs> uh, probably let me drown, I guess. There right. it is, dude. I'm kickstand all the way. Minute and 34 seconds, here. dude. I'm in and out, bro. <laughs> Minute and 34. Sweet, perfect, done. Because I can't, you think I could do it to like suicide? That's seven <laughs> minutes. That's seven minutes in one second, dude. <laughs> Um, and I guess the last question, I mean, do you, do you feel this deserves to be on the 500 greatest albums list? I mean, it's weird. We've never asked somebody that's been a part of the record and, and no ego. I mean, cause I do personally, I do. I, I feel like when you're putting, when you're putting together when these lists are, are meaningless, it's always nice to get the accolades and, and your band has 100% gotten that through, through awards and, and write-ups. But if you're talking about that era in time, you know, from from 1990 until, I mean, I guess really, unfortunately it was the death of Kurt where, where grunge really kind of, that, that beauty of that 
do it yourself, you know, because literally Kurt dies. And next thing you know, you've got Limp Bizkit and nothing against them, but new metal started coming in. And it was just, you know, that era just, you know, was such a special time in so many people's lives that you, this is a record that you have to put there. I mean, you have to, it's, it's up there. I'd say you have to put Alice in Chains Dirt, you have to put this and you have to put, you know, and both Nirvana records and even I, I'd even put Bleach in as well, right. just because of, of what, you know, of how, of how, like you said, they broke through the right. stratosphere. But what is what's your the, opinion? What's about? the specific categories of 500 rock it's, albums? Is no, it it's, a, it's, it's Rolling, Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all so, time. Of all time. This is the 2012 list. Uh, the 2021 they just updated. Uh, is this one on there, Adam? On the 2020? This is not on the 2020. Ah, you <laughs> bastards. <laughs> is there, it's a, well, there should be a Soundgarden album on, on, on the... 2020, top. for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for no other reason than, than, than it's part in the, in the lineage of, of rock music history and its influence, you know, with, with other artists and musicians and people coming up and people who are yet to form bands, you know, or people who are forming them as we speak. So if there was one that was representative, it'd probably be this one, which is the biggest selling one. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say that it's the one that I think is the best critically or that it's my personal favorite, but it's the one that was the most successful. So it should be the one that would represent a band that would represent a scene, yeah. you know, and a time period in music history. So if you had to do it that way and say rock and roll, rock and roll, significant movements, rock and roll, bands within those movements, albums from those bands, you know, uh, body of work. In, in that case, I'd say, yeah, super no. I, 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 now I gotta ask you, as you said it, what is your, what is your favorite Soundgarden record? <laughs> uh, for years, for years, there's always Screaming Life or Super Unknown. Um, I constantly got to remind people that that Screaming Life is a uh, is is an album, even though it's it's not an LP. Uh, it's it, everything about it is conceptually an album. You know, it's it's a, it's a sub pop Jack and Dino studio sessions that were reciprocal. It was on sub. It was our sub pop period. We made two 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 records on on sub pop. One was more of an album. One was more of a maxi single. You know, the FOP EP was four songs built around that's the single, the song Fop. Um, so, and Matt, Matt felt the same way for years with Screaming Life and then Super Unknown. So for years it was Screaming Life and Super Unknown. And then I revisited Bad Motor Finger while working on the anniversary box about six years ago. And, and, and I just heard things I'd forgotten about and, and, that, like Super Unknown, is an album that you can kind of stick your hand in and move it around and feel parts of it. It just you can be immersed in the in the in just in the ambience uh, and in the material. So it kind of kind of went bad motor speed. Uh, I'm sure it'll change again. So. Yeah, right now it's probably bad motor finger, but I but I think your know, screaming life and Super Unknown have been there, you know, as well. I mean, it just just for I mean, excluding all the hits, just for slaves and bulldozers alone, oh, yeah. dude. I mean, I mean, I couldn't even imagine what that was like hearing him hit those notes in that studio when he recorded. I mean, were you guys just like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, he did that with Beyond the Wheel off of Ultra Mega OK. I mean, he he did that, and I 
was I wasn't fully I I needed other singers and friends of mine to point that out for me to fully appreciate that that how tough it is to do that as a guitarist I thought right on and I, I said, hey, <laughs> you're like oh, okay yeah. dude but, it, but it had took other singers of friends go how the hell is he doing that I go well he's singing he's singing high and he's got he's got some strong pipe going no I'm like that's crazy like is it yeah it's crazy oh, that's kind of crazy and <laughs> <laughs> I, I other people point that out to me because so yeah that it's it's I mean, it, it's it's the abs I mean, Chris had strong diaphragm and, and, and stomach you know and then it's one thing to yell it out there it's another thing to have the ear and know where you're yelling and, and that's what Chris had I mean he, he, had a, he had a gift everybody I mean I read this I want to I want to end it on this quote I found this somewhere it says you said this and tell me if I'm wrong I think Soundgarden's a pretty good band and I'm, fi- I'm a fine guitarist. I'm not God, but I'm certainly not average. I feel very comfortable with the fact that not many other people can do what I do on guitar. And this is the part that I fucking love. I think my guitar is happy with the way I play it. Did you see that? <laughs> I'd probably stand by that. I mean, I, but it's, it's, a, it's a way to understand and define oneself as a musician, really. I, I would, I would imagine it's, there's so many great guitars out there. I mean, there are guitarists in every town has some hot shot that's probably better than someone who's making. There's probably some, there's some kid who's 15 or 16 who technically could play circles around whatever is getting all the airplay, you know, yeah. these days. Um, and it's always the case. It's just one of those things. You can't quantify or measure something like that. It, it so I look at I look at stylistic distinct distinctions in the way people play. You know, like I can if I you know I can if I turn on the radio or I'm at someone's house and I hear something I I can I know when it's Jeff Beck. You know, and I know mm-hmm. when it uh, you know Hendrix and it, it's that it's it's for so just just be who you are and honestly have the instrument convey your voice. And then if you are talking in your voice, people will hear it and recognize it. And, and that's what I think it will distinguish it. If they don't like what you have to say or like the sound of your voice, that's another thing, you know? So I love Jeff Beck and I can tell when he's playing. So. No, I, I, you've, I can't thank you enough. For not even just saying that, cause that can be applied to stand-up comedy, to acting, to whatever job that you do. It's just like, you. I love the things that you said. Take risks. You just get it out there. Don't worry about it. You'll work it out. And and and, and that, that's, and I think that's like a perfect way to end it. Kim, uh, thank you, dude. Like, I, I can't thank you enough, man, for coming on today. This was great. You are just the shit. You're <laughs> well, the thank shit. Joshua, and thank you, Adam. And, and you know, if you ever have another topic that you want to explore that you think I can add to, I do it. Oh yeah, dude. Oh yeah. You'll, you'll come up. I, want to, I want to get you talking about a band that you, that you didn't, a record that you didn't make. I want to hear you fanboy out with me. Sure. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's just, it's, it's great. And, and, and seriously, man, I mean, I mean this, I, I said this to Meg before you got on the air, it's like, you know, black hole sun, during the pandemic uh, took on a way different thing for me because I, I found the Nora Jones version of the song. Oh yeah. 
which I think she recorded four days after, after Chris had passed. And at the same theater, I think the last theater he played in and just the performance. And it was like you said, it was that song that I had the same reaction where it was like, yeah, I love the song, but I heard it so much. It's all the other shit on the record that I love. And then during the pandemic, I went down to Hollywood forever cemetery to take mushrooms of all things <laughs> with a friend. And I sat by, by Chris's grave and just listened to this record and then I listened to the Nora Jones version and just like, and I think it was not just the, the power of losing somebody that has influenced me, but also just what we were dealing with in the world at the time. Yeah. And it was yeah. just such an expel of emotions that, I mean, the next day I was just like, wow, I feel so much better. It was one of my favorite moments of the entire pandemic, if there could be any. Wow. Right on. Like it gave you some, there's some perspective and, 100%. Where you fit in the universe right then? It's it it's a sideways universe the past few years, so that's kind of cool that that you can orient yourself in in, in that regard. You know, it's mushrooms, mushrooms <laughs> and music, dude. Mushrooms and music that'll that'll do it for anybody. Uh, Kim, thank you, brother. Well, thank you, Josh. We'll, we'll talk to you in the future. What did I tell you? I mean, hands down probably my favorite episode i've recorded of this podcast uh kim thank you uh i'll see you in seattle we're gonna hang uh because what home is uh man i don't think he gave us any social or anything like that so just fucking kim just tell just write a tweet says kim you fucking rule tag me at josh adam myers i want everybody to do it for listener shout out this week i want to go back as the first of the year to uh the og dj morty coil uh, we miss you. We love you. We hope you're doing well. Morty, uh, he's on a fight to get the band, the Monkees, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Help him. Help him do that. At DJ Morty Coyle on all social media. All right. Soundgarden, 94. Who do we got? Violent Soho. They're a band from Brisbane, Australia. Uh, they got that grunge sound. When you listen to do Lying on the Floor, all of everything is A-OK. And you can find the links to the music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you want your song played by the 500 people, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and all that influenced you in the subject line. Next week, Oh, baby girl, we got Graham Parker and The Rumor. I have never fucking heard of this band at all. I already listened to it, and every song sounds the same. As we go deep into the 1979 record, squeezing out the sparks. Ooh, my favorite style of point. Sparking, squeezing. Uh, do your homework.
floor is all I want to do. Don't let me hit the ground. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Who out there? Yes, we're out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Next Chapter Podcasts.